We all need food to survive, but the way we produce and consume today is not sustainable nor healthy. We looked to science to find the answer, but got surprised. There was no clear answer on what a healthy diet from a sustainable food production really looked like. This is why EAT gathered 37 of the world's best scientists to get a definitive answer on what a healthy and sustainable diet looks like for all. Their joint result is the EAT Lancet Commission, not just a scientific report. It is a blueprint for a better and more sustainable future. It will have fundamental implications for how we produce, distribute, consume and waste food. Nothing will ever be the same again. The good news is that it's possible to feed healthy and sustainable food to a growing population. But to get there, you could argue that we'll have to question everything we know about food and learn how to eat again. I'm Dr Hazel Wallace from The Food Medic. And I'm Dr Sandro DeMeo, CEO of EAT. From the studio in London, we aim to translate the Eat Lancet findings into everyday actions to you, our global audience. This is the Let's Rethink Food podcast, a collaboration between Eat and The Food Medic. Welcome to the second episode of the Eat Lancet podcast. Last time we had founder of EAT, Gunhild Stordalen, here to tell us why she started the work leading up to the Eat Lancet Commission. What we have now for the first time in history is a full scientific review of what constitutes a healthy diet from a sustainable food system and which actions can support and speed up food system transformation. In this episode, we will introduce the planetary health diet and discuss how the Eat Lancet Commission could possibly be a blueprint for a better future. And who better to do that than the scientific superstars and co-chairs of the commission, Professor Walter Willett and Professor Johan Rockström. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Good to be with you. Thank you. So, Johan, I wanted to start with you. Why is the Eat Lancet Commission needed? Well, we have so much scientific evidence today that food is the single largest driver behind global environmental change. Many of the risks we're seeing around the world from global warming to loss of biodiversity to pollution of waterways to deforestation to land degradation are associated with unsustainable production of food. But then we have so much evidence that also shows that the way we eat food and the food we eat is associated with so many rapidly rising health threats from diabetes to malnutrition to obesity to different forms of non-communicable diseases like cardiovascular disease and stroke. And, uh, you know, we, we as scholars have, have come to a point where we now need to really recognize that if we can get it right for food, both in terms of, of health and sustainability, so what we call health for us humans and health for the planet, we stand a good chance of having a good future for, for humanity and for planet Earth. So that's why the Lancet Commission was born, actually, the recognition that we have so much evidence of, of the threats posed by unhealthy and unsustainable food, but at the same time, actually seeing so many opportunities of a win-win future where we're combining health and sustainability could actually take us to the future we want. And Walter, you have studied the effects of diets for over 30 years. What exactly is the planetary health diet? And is it a total departure from everything we've known about food before? 
Well, I should just mention that the planetary health diet uh, came about from a very extensive review of many hundreds of publications over the last several decades, uh, different kinds of scientific evidence, controlled feeding studies, long-term epidemiologic studies, randomized trials. So we attempted to pull together all that information, which is largely published in little pieces, and put it all together in an overall diet that would fit within the caloric needs of the world's population. Basically, this is a largely plant-based diet where we have low amounts of red meat and dairy. It's not a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet uh, necessarily, although if you want to do that, that certainly fits within this big umbrella. But it emphasizes plant sources of protein like nuts and beans, uh, soy products over red meat and uh, dairy products. In the end, this provides a lot of flexibility. You can make diets from foods that are found around the world, put them together in lots of different combinations. And we know from culinary traditions around the world, it can be uh, wonderful, tasty. It may look different for people living in the UK or North America, but it's very consistent with a traditional Mediterranean diet, for example, which is important because that's been very well studied. And when people were eating the Mediterranean diet in Greece, for example, uh, the traditional Mediterranean diet, they were very healthy. They had the longest life expectancy in the world. So in some ways, we're not totally reinventing a way to eat, but we're identifying some traditions that were particularly healthy. And uh, then we've come at it from a scientific basis, looking at all the pieces of a diet and it ends up converging. Mm. And it's incredible to think that you've had 37 scientists. I love the analogy of sort of the, the puzzle that you had all these little pieces of science, high quality science all around the world on these different topics, but you've brought them all together into one puzzle. They all fit together. And just like a puzzle, it gives you a new picture. It gives you a, a clearer picture of what is healthy and sustainable for people and for the planet. Absolutely. And I think every one of us, 37, learned a lot in this process, <laughs> including uh, the language that each other speaks. Uh, these are quite different areas that included earth science, uh, agricultural science, human nutrition, social sciences. Uh, it was a real challenge, uh, but a great learning opportunity. And I, th I think we did put together something that is unique. So, Professor Willett, you're one of the most published nutritional epidemiologists in the world, possibly the most published. What was the most fascinating thing you learned through this process? Uh, it's hard to pinpoint just one <laughs> piece. I did understand in a very general way uh, that our foods and the way we produce our foods were having a major impact on the uh, planet. And, uh, but to really see the depth at which this has been studied by the earth science people, mm. we knew that there were boundaries to what we could do to the earth. You can't abuse something uh, continuously mm. and, and increasingly without destroying it, basically. Mm. It was, uh, for me, really reassuring to know that Johan Rockström and his colleagues have developed uh, boundaries and used science to, to define these as carefully as they possible. Obviously, our science is continuously refining the details, but to put those planetary boundaries together with what we see, maybe like nutritional boundaries, mm. how, what, uh, what's the range of things we can eat and be optimally healthy, that was an incredible opportunity that we had in uh, creating this commission and eventually coming out with a product. Mm. And Johan, I, I want to ask you about the planetary boundaries concept. So a major feature of this report is its targets for the food system as well as the diet to safeguard our planet. What are planetary boundaries and what does the report actually recommend? Before coming to that, let me just echo Walt's point here about you know, how, how valuable this was 
from his, let's say, health horizon to enter a sustainability horizon on food, how equally valuable and and invaluable even it has been to enter the whole food domain from a sustainability perspective right into the health area and and how many synergies that we've found, you know, that we can now scientifically create a compelling joint story where many of of the health benefits of food also are planetary benefits of food. And I would even argue let's say a bit more egoistically from a sustainability perspective, that, that the health argument is a vector to succeed on sustainability. Because mm. quite frankly, it's not easy to communicate sustainability always. You know, why should I save the planet? But on the health argument, you actually can reach the heart of individual directly. It's, it's very personal. It comes down to, to me as an individual, do I or don't I want to have a healthy life? So I think what we are trying to do here, and I've accomplished in this report, is is really helping both disciplines in, in a very significant way. And then, well, coming to your question then on, on what's the planetary boundaries, well, let, let me enter that in, in the following way, that there has been and continues to be fantastic research on sustainable agriculture. That has been, you know, it's a discipline that has been researching over decades, doing fantastic work on focusing in on how we can produce at the farming level um, food in ways that does not pollute water or soils and use resources in in sustainable, efficient ways. What we've come to recognize is that we have added up so much evidence that we have now come to the conclusion that we are now the largest force of change at the planetary scale. So we've tipped over very recently, just over the past 25 years, from being this relatively small world on a big planet where there was kind of redundant resources to now being the world on a small planet where we have filled up the whole environmental space on Earth. And the biggest filler among the filling is is the food system. We've transformed 50% of all natural ecosystems on land into different forms of agriculture. Mm. So this is a big drama, actually, in the agricultural development. We have defined planetary boundaries by recognizing that in the Anthropocene, we need to identify the processes that regulates the stability of the planet, and we attempt scientifically to quantify safe boundaries that provide us with what we call the safe operating space of a stable and resilient planet or Earth system. The planetary boundaries for food is trying to recognize the fact that the food system is now a global concern and we can now scientifically put forward targets for the food system at the planetary level, meaning that if the food system can stay within these, we have a good chance of safeguarding biodiversity, not destroying our rivers, having pollution levels that are manageable and that keeps air quality and water quality intact basically to stay at a stable level. That's, in a nutshell, the planetary boundaries. And Walter, just bringing it back to you for a minute, we've just discussed how this diet is sustainable and a plant-based diet can have a lower impact on the environment. But how will this benefit our health, us as humans? We could estimate that if everybody adopted this healthy diet, we would prevent about 11 million premature deaths per year around the world. Uh, And uh, we actually came at this question three different ways, using three different models, and they all came to just about the same number of about 11 million 
uh, premature deaths that are avoidable by adopting a healthy dietary pattern. So there is a big win. Uh, like Dr. Rockstrom said, if you only cared about health, that would be a good enough reason to adopt this way of eating. And uh, those paybacks are pretty quick. And we've seen that adopting a healthy diet within um, you can get, see real biochemical improvements within a matter of weeks. You can see disease reductions in a matter of months or a few years. The planetary benefits are coming down the road a little bit in years, but mm-hmm. the consequences of not making these changes for the planet are obviously huge if we care about the, the world our children and our grandchildren will inherit. What are some of those diseases that we might avoid? Mm-hmm. First of all, diabetes is probably the most sensitive to dietary change, and we can very quickly reduce risk of type 2 diabetes. We will reduce cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, basically uh, reduce strokes. There's a lot of evidence that we will reduce pulmonary disease. Uh, That list goes on pretty long, but uh, those are the main causes of death. Modest reduction in cancer risk. So uh, diet is amazing. Uh, that it really cuts across the board of virtually every organ in the body in terms of uh, impacts. And that's not surprising. They're all connected. Uh, That uh, a good diet that's good for the um, cardiovascular system turns out it's very good for the brain. We see uh, lower risks of uh, cognitive decline and dementia. Mm. Uh, So there's... um, benefits, very widespread benefits by adopting a healthy diet. So it sounds as though this is a win-win for people and planet, that's clear. But Walter, does this mean that we all have to wake up tomorrow and start eating the same food and the same lunch and the same dinner across the entire planet? Uh, No, that uh, some people call this a flexitarian diet, which basically means it's largely plant-based, but still uh, some modest amounts of red meat are possible, some uh, modest amounts of dairy, uh, definitely a fairly generous amount of fish, etc. So you can put those pieces together in, in many ways. If you want to be a vegan, yes, you can do that uh, and still be within this general concept. So this can be put together with eating cultures from uh, Asia, from Latin America, from Africa, and uh, have an equally healthy diet. Mm. Uh, people do like variety. We see mm. people get bored, and and that's the failure of most diets is that a lot of them may be healthy, but staying with them is really hard. This allows for incredible flexibility. Mm. And Walter, I just want to talk about meat for a minute. So the commission recommends that we eat just 14 grams of red meat per day. For many of us, this means a dramatic decrease in the meat that we're eating at the moment. So we, we know that red meat is a good source of protein and, and certain vitamins like iron and vitamin B12, particularly for certain populations. So will reducing this amount of meat give us the amount of nutrients that we need? Uh, yes, uh, we have run a, a nutrient analysis on this eating pattern and we will get the amounts of nutrients that we need. This amount, uh, 14 grams or about half an ounce a day, sounds like a sort of micro burger. <laughs> yeah. It's about a tablespoon, isn't it? <laughs> right. A micro burger. <laughs> yeah, which might be good if people like micro burgers. <laughs> but uh, in reality, people, of course, this is average intake over a period of uh, months or, or even longer. So that, what that translates to is about a fairly big size hamburger once a week, or if you really like big juicy steaks, have that once a month. Uh, so, and that's really the way that meat was consumed in the Mediterranean mm. traditional diet, that red meat was something for special events on mm. Easter or Christmas or some other holiday. You would kill a lamb 
and have some uh, red meat. And it's sort of the way I think about lobsters, too. I really love them. and But I don't have them every day. I have them about two or three times a year, and that's special. Uh, so that's, I think, how we need to start thinking about red meat, not just as an everyday thing, but if you like it, and some people are totally fine not having any, but if you mm-hmm. like it, yeah, think of uh, special occasions or uh, maybe once a week, week as a, a burger. Or some people really do have small amounts like a tablespoon as part of a mixed dish, more or less using it as a condiment. Many traditional diets use meat in that way. So again, many ways to do this, but we're not saying everybody has to be a vegetarian or a vegan. Mm. Yeah. Could I just uh, add one one dimension here that, that you often raise, Walt, which I think is really important. In, in addition to this, you know, recognizing this, the balancing of, of diets and that we're not suggesting, you know, to eliminate all meat. Remember also that this is a scientific exercise, but it actually has quite quite uh, deep equity implications, actually, because when you look across the world, mm. the countries or societies that are, to say, over-consuming in an unhealthy way and an unsustainable way is predominantly, you know, the, the rich industrialized countries that are over-consuming meat and have been rushing towards this unsustainable, unhealthy situation just over the past 20, 30 years. While the reality in the future is that we have to share the remaining environmental space on Earth. So we cannot allow ourselves to, you know, to get all the feed and contribute to all the cutting down of the forest and all the nutrient use for our unsustainable, unhealthy overconsumption, when in fact we have to share with soon 10 billion co-citizens in the world. So when you look at developing countries, we're not suggesting that they should reduce animal protein intake. In fact, most poor communities will, will have to increase their protein intake for health reasons, and we have to create the room for them also from a sustainability perspective. That's one of the implications of planetary boundaries, that we are at one Earth and we have to share the remaining space. Mm. Yeah, I, I wanted to add about one additional point, too, about the r- relatively low amounts of red meat. And a lot of the health benefits from where we consume a lot of it, say in UK and US, uh, a lot of the health benefits of reducing it will be only achieved if we replace it with healthy plant forms of protein, Mm. such as nuts, legumes, soy products. If we replace it with a bunch of refined starch and sugar, our health could even deteriorate. It's not just about reducing something that we don't need and actually has some health harms, but introducing more of health-promoting foods that are plant-based. In the report, the suggested amount is about one glass of milk per day or the equivalent in cheese or yogurt. And this is much less than what's recommended in most countries. From a nutritional standpoint, is this enough to provide us with the nutrients that we need that we find in dairy foods like calcium and protein and iodine? Yes, uh, we've looked at that in quite a bit of detail. These high recommendations are usually based on the idea that we need to drink a lot of milk or have other dairy products because they contain a lot of calcium and we need that to build up our bones, uh, especially during childhood and adolescence for the rest of our life. Uh, uh, But uh, when we've looked at the data, there's really not evidence that eating more than a serving of dairy per day will reduce risk of fractures. Uh, later in life. Part of it is that a lot of the studies of calcium and bone health have been studies lasting only two or three weeks long. And now we have quite a few long-term studies looking at dairy consumption and uh, actual fracture risk, and we don't see those benefits 
uh, of uh, high dairy consumption leading to lower fracture risk. Uh, calcium is definitely a nutritional uh, nutrient that's essential for lots of different reasons, but we pick it up from lots of different foods. And uh, lots of people actually, uh, in fact, if you look at countries around the world, the countries with the lowest fracture risk are the countries that consume almost no dairy products. That's been sort of a, uh, an enigma for a long time. And turns out when we look, we, even in our populations here, we don't see that high dairy consumption reduces fracture risk. We do need calcium, but we can pick up enough that one serving a day uh, from everything we've seen is likely to be sufficient. There's just a little interesting tangent to that story that we've known for a long time that the Sweden uh, and uh, other Nordic countries have the highest hip fracture rates in the world, even though they're the highest dairy consumers in the world. And so that that was really an interesting, puzzling finding. And it looks like uh, the part of the reason, at least, is that if we drink a lot of milk, because of all the hormones in milk and all the growth-promoting nutrients, it makes people get really tall. And so that's probably why the Dutch women are the tallest women in the world and Swedish women are very close. We've looked at this 15 years ago. We saw that being tall is a strong risk factor for fractures. So you fall harder. Long bones are easier to break than shorter bones. And it's interesting that this high dairy consumption is probably actually increasing the risk of fractures in those countries. And I have to say, as someone who's fairly tall and just moved to Scandinavia with the ice that's on the ground at the moment, uh, I think uh, I'll, <laughs> be, I'll be I'll be lucky for my hip to to last through till the end of the year. Um, <laughs> another really critical point, though, to drive home, Walter, is that this report is not just focusing on telling us all the things we should be eating less of. It's not taking away everything we love. It's also clearly telling us to eat much more of the things that we we really enjoy and that are great for our body and the planet around us. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Right. Uh, that, that's really important. Again, that's what we eat. Uh, going to eat instead of all that red meat. Mm. That's really important. And for example, nuts come out really at the, almost every study at the top of the list of lowest rates of heart disease, lowest rates of diabetes, lowest rates of other non-communicable diseases. And uh, nuts were for quite a while condemned because they were high in fat. As it turns out that almost all the fat in nuts is unsaturated fat, which actually lowers blood cholesterol levels and reduces risk of heart disease and, and other conditions. Plus nuts have... Uh, uh, lots of minerals and vitamins and fiber uh, in them as well. So they're uh, really, uh, when you think of nuts, they are like a seed and those, uh, they're packed with all the nutrients a big oak tree needs to mm. grow. And uh, it turns out a lot of those overlap with the nutrients that humans need as well. So when you have a meal, like uh, oftentimes I'll have a salad at lunch and the norm would be to put in some uh, a little meat or some cheese, and then I'll usually throw in some nuts, and mm. uh, you get a double win there because you're reducing something that has uh, adverse health effects like uh, the meat and putting in something that has positive health benefits. Mm. Uh, soy products are also very healthy. Again, they have fat, uh, but it's almost all polyunsaturated fat and, uh, again, has those health benefits from, from those healthy fatty acids. And uh, beans, too, uh, have a lot of uh, loaded with minerals and vitamins. So uh, having a combination, we don't want, I think it's not desirable to have all nuts, all soy or all beans, but mixing and matching across these important protein sources. And, and again, our diet includes a generous amount of fish, modest amount of poultry, uh, a modest amount of eggs. So there's just incredible variety there. But there are these really positive health benefits that are coming, especially from these plant protein sources. 
And most of us don't eat enough fruit and vegetables. That was a key finding as well of the commission and calling for many of us, even here in wealthier countries, to be eating a lot more. Can you tell us a little bit about that finding? Yes, that, that's not surprising. Pretty much everybody who's looked at the situation finds that uh, people are not eating as many fruits and vegetables as they should for optimal health reasons or to meet their national dietary guidelines. And this is a situation where we need to look at what is it going to take to get people to eat more fruits and vegetables. And there's a long list of answers there, but in general, they have to be affordable, available, uh, so everyone can enjoy those. Unfortunately, those foods are less supported or indirectly subsidized in most countries compared to beef and dairy production. So we've really created some imbalance in incentives and uh, economic uh, opportunities for healthy eating. Now, Johan, before we go, what are a few things we can all do today to eat in a way that is closer to the reference diet for people and for planet? I would hope that this report can stimulate people around the world to start experimenting, to, to say, okay, here is a healthy, sustainable diet. It's a flexitarian uh, framework. And why not try to uh, compose culinary, very attractive um, compositions of, of food within that. So that, that's one step. I, I can foresee that many cookbooks could now be inspired by this science to kind of design a menu that could, that could follow this work. But then finally, quite frankly, something we also had discussing a lot in the commission, we would of course love to see that countries in the world now adopt uh, food guidelines that, that does take an integrated approach, integrating both health and sustainability, and that they could you know, build on, on the science that we're providing. And uh, we have already lined up some work. So there's a lot that we hope can be done. For those at home, it's incredible to hear Johan talk about, you know, engaging world leaders and the biggest businesses and transforming our food systems. But it, it can feel pretty daunting for those of us who then go home and get ready to make dinner. What, what are some practical ideas, meal tips, or even meals themselves that inspire you in your cooking as an international expert in this field? Sure. It's uh, really important to take this information and put it on the table. And as you uh, said, that um, my wife is a great cook, and so I don't pretend to be. Uh, <laughs> but uh, a lot of times I'm uh, having my own meal or uh, I have to prepare my own meal anyway. And so uh, my basic is uh, to start with a salad. And partly I look to see what's in the refrigerator. I may have to run out and get something, uh, but starts with greens and fruits that might be in season, but they don't have to be in season. The dry fruits, dry blueberries, uh, dry cranberries go in a salad, right, uh, just as well. It's become almost the norm that every salad has cheese in it, but it doesn't have to. If you think cheese, think nuts. And uh, sometimes you may say, oh, the cheese really is necessary, but a lot of times nuts are a good replacement because they come in so many different flavors Mm. and uh, ground up or textures or whole. There's an incredible, uh, almost infinite variety there. And of course, uh, a good salad dressing and some good vinegar. And uh, it's really a whole meal right there. So that's that's my go-to, quick in a hurry. I have to do it myself meal. Uh, My wife makes a great lentil, not lentil loaf. It Mm. sort of would be something you have instead of a meatloaf. And it's really good. There's a red peppery sauce that goes across the top of it. Uh, So that's that's one of our favorites uh, uh, as a a totally vegetarian dish. And other evenings, it's uh, 
maybe a quick stir fry of vegetables and a small and a little bit of fish or something like that. Uh, sometimes the week, um, I have tofu prepared in multiple ways as a quick and easy option to meet. Uh, so uh, the good thing is that there's just an incredible variety. It's it, and it's becoming easier mm. uh, that these foods 20 or 30 years ago were not so available. But uh, fortunately, uh, the great thing about immigration is a lot of immigrants <laughs> bought some great food with them. Yeah. And uh, there's, uh, like in London here, an incredibly <clears throat> uh, great variety of uh, wonderful foods just down the street. I've had a, uh, some um, great meals at the Greek and the Turkish restaurant down the street here. So when are we coming for dinner? <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love that idea, though, of, of throwing on a handful of nuts. It sort of adds your healthy fats, keeps yeah. you full and... And adds a bit of substance to to the leafy greens. But yeah. for those who are wanting maybe something more substantial underneath or with it, what are some healthy options or great options for a bit more lasting energy in terms of uh, carbohydrates or whole grains? Yeah, well, you, uh, these salads do sometimes put in some whole grains too. That uh, you got to. Uh, this is my no cook. <laughs> I, I do have to take a little time to cook the whole grains or, uh, if you're going to uh, put those in. Although, actually, I usually cook up oats once uh, every three or four days and put it in the refrigerator and you uh, can sort of be having those as the week goes through. So if you want to do that, all, nuts, as you say, uh, actually among all the foods that have been evaluated for satiety, they come right out at the top. Mm. So. I don't necessarily have to put in something else. But Keeps if you, you want to, a lot, uh, okay, okay. lots of whole grains can make it a, a, add a whole other layer of variety. And, and over the next few weeks, we're going to explore not, not only how we try and get uh, inspire us all to eat more of the healthier foods, more of the foods that are good for us and the planet, but also we're going to be looking at how we can transform the food system to actually produce that greater quantity that we will need to feed a growing population. Absolutely. In the meantime, head over to eatforum.org for more information on the Commission, the launch and how you can get involved. Mm.